All right. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the second episode of Christ-Pilled Conversations. This is the show where me and one of my Christ-loving friends study through one of the chapters of the Gospels. Um, my definition of Christ-Pilled, and this is my show, so we go by my definition, to be Christ-Pilled is to rely on Christ for all uh, all the answers uh, relevant for living over and above any political movement, philosophy, set of doctrines, or creeds, but to be rooted in life, understanding, and all things in Christ and him crucified. We are trying to see clearly a first century Christ in a 21st century world. I have with me today a good friend of mine, uh, San Jose area preacher, awesome guy, Zach McGinnis. I'm happy to see you. How you doing, man? Hey, what's up, Paul? I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've got, uh, I've got a lot of things on my plate right now, and um, I, but I still appreciated the opportunity to have a good conversation with with someone who cares about uh, biblical truth and cares about uh, the cause of Christ. So, yeah, well, we've all got a lot on our plates. I've, I've been scrambling all day. I got uh, maintenance people coming here later to fix my dishwasher, uh, which is going to be a whole nightmare. And I kept telling them to push it later in the afternoon. Cause I'm like, now nah, I got to record this thing. And I'm, uh, <laughs> so they probably think I'm some kind of weirdo, but it's fine. Um, so we are looking today at Matthew chapter two. Uh, and by the way, before we j jump into it, tell them a little bit about what you do there at, at Almaden Valley in, uh, in San Jose. Tell them about where you work. Yeah. So, uh, let's see, I've been, I've been preaching at the Almaden Valley church of Christ in in South San Jose for a little over a year now. Okay. I came in February, 2020, right before the pandemic hit. So that was nice timing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, just been trying to uh, get to know the congregation, uh, understand my role and, and what they expect my role to be and, and get to know as, as many people as possible and, and uh, just grow in spirit and truth, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny, me and you had slightly similar paths. You had just started that job in February. Um, and I, I came to California from Kentucky in September of 2019 to start training with Mike Wilson in Santa Clara. And so you accepted that job in February and then COVID hit in March. And I remember me and you were, were eating at Chipotle when, uh, we, we got the news that everything was going to get shut down and we were stay at home orders were going out. That was in March of last year. Um, and then it's been a world of madness ever since. And then in September of this past year, I took the job here in Vacaville. And as you say, it does, it takes some time and it's a little bit of a tricky thing, especially when it's your first, uh, full-time preaching job to sort of navigate the needs of the congregation and what you should be doing with your time and, um, the day-to-day -day stuff. And I'm still working with, through some of that with my group and, um, I think that's kind of a, a normal thing, you know, your first, uh, first few years, maybe even beyond that. So maybe some of these older guys can, can give me some, some advice there, but I, I wanted, I want this show to be a mix of conversation between, um, older people, younger people, different kinds of people, you know, preachers, non-preachers, um, you know, uh, all, all sorts of people. And so I thought you would be a great, uh, second guest just because um, you're a knowledgeable guy, you're a good preacher, 
um, but you're also just a very friendly and personable guy. And so I figured, well, just a casual Bible study conversation will be will be no big deal with Zach. So, uh, all right, without further ado, let's jump into Matthew chapter two. Me and Ed had a great conversation about Matthew one last week, and he brought all kinds of uh, expert level knowledge. Uh, to Matthew chapter one, although uh, I've assured you before we started this that that's completely unnecessary for this show. We don't need expert level knowledge. We just want to dig through and try to see what we can, what gems we can uncover. So uh, I was going to say, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, uh, possibly intentionally, but you couldn't have picked a second guess that was more opposite of your first guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, in terms of uh, age and style and and uh, wisdom and, and maturity and all of that. so <laughs> yeah, I won't say that I thought of it explicitly in those terms, but uh, now that you now that you pointed out, I think it will it, it will actually make a good a, a nice contrast. I think yeah. you're selling yourself short too, but <laughs> I think it'll be I think it'll be fine. Well, so I'll I, bring my uh, youth and energy to to the uh, to the stream, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that we we need that uh, at least uh, you know every few weeks get get some young blood in here. That's so, right. um, I, last week I had I read first, and then Ed read, and then I read, and maybe it seems now thinking on it that, that was probably the wrong order. I should probably let the guests read first. So let's just read through all of Matthew chapter two. Uh, actually, no, let's not do that. Let's read. Um, let's I'll have you read verses one through six and then we'll stop and talk about it. And then I'll read the next little section. Sound good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm reading from the English standard, uh, Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw when his star for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay. So um, looking, going back to two, to two verse one. So Jesus has been born in Bethlehem of Judea. And we should note that, that Bethlehem is, is a very small town. Um, and this is in the days of Herod, the King that's, that's Herod, the great um, who, I saw, you know, reigned from approximately 37 BC to around 4 BC, um, and this is becomes important when people try to date the exact time of Jesus's birth, which is, I would say, kind of a futile task in terms of like a specific date. But we can narrow it down to probably reasonably say late 5 BC to early 4 BC if we're going by the traditional dating of Herod the Great's reign. Um, but I was going to ask you, um, what, what, what is your, what are your thoughts or intuitions or, or whatever you have on the wise men from the East coming to Jerusalem? Who, who are these, these wise men? Did you see, did you read anything on that or or see anything there? Yeah. Well, as, as far as I understand it, or my, as far as my understanding goes, 
these men were, I, I think the Greek word is magi or, mm -hmm. um, and so these were not mystics or, you know, uh, maybe magicians as, as what we would tend to think. And, uh, they would have been more in the, in the vein of philosophers or probably, uh, astrologers, things of that, you know, um, highly educated men, mm -hmm. essentially. And so, uh, they would have been studying these things or, you know, astronomy or whatever, astrology or what have you. And, uh, um, discerned this information and probably had some heavenly influence as well. It seems like. Yeah. 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 It seems so like, it seems definitely like there was some heavily heavenly influence involved. Yeah. I mean, there's, you can read all kinds of different things and different speculations about who they might've been or where they might've come from. I mean, the, in terms of where they came from, a lot of people will bring up Persia and Babylonia. Um, uh, they also bring gifts that are sort of tend to be native to the Arabian Peninsula. So some people have brought that up, although that doesn't seem it is technically to the east, but not very far. Um, yeah. So uh, to me, like Persia or Babylon seemed the most like lo logical place. And like you said, it seems likely that they were astrologers of some kind who were watching the sky for for signs. Anyway, this was a very common um, ancient practice. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what they were schooled in. There may be like, um, a Zoroastrian connection there, or they may have just been, uh, sort of pagan priests, but they were revealed in some way, um, that this knowledge of, uh, this, this, what this star that they, that they will see means. And so to me, that indicates some kind of, um, heavenly communication between them, um, which is, is just a fascinating thing to me. Uh, that uh, it's it's the uh, the the wise men and the sages of some far off nation and and not Judea um, that God uses uh, that God brings this uh, to their attention because um, we'll see it a little bit later in the chapter when Herod assembles the scribes and the chief priests they don't seem as aware of of all this as um, as the, these magi are yeah so well, let me uh, quickly point out here before we get too much further dispel yeah. the comment myth I, i'm actually going to enjoy going through chapter two with you today because even myself um when i don't uh, revisit the the birth story you know every so often i kind of allow myself to fall back into remembering the the classic nativity and, and christmas bird you know kind of the yeah. the charlie brown christmas version of of the nativity story and uh so let's yeah. just say right now, before we get too much further, that we don't know how many uh, of these magi or wise men there were. There's probably more than three would be my guess, even though yeah. that the, the classic version says three because of the three gifts that were right. presented. Yeah, but, uh, I, yeah, I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say I, I agree. I think it was likely um, more more than three. I think that that seems I mean it really doesn't matter how many there were, but to me, it seems like there was, this could have very well been a whole convoy of, yeah. of people. We'll, yeah. we'll just say minimum of two, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> there are multiple. Um, yeah. I, 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 it struck me in verse two as well, that they, first of all, they, they come to Herod. So they're probably, you know, he's a gatekeeper uh, for this community. He's a ruler. Um, and so they probably want to get some sort of permission from him since they're foreign travelers, I would assume, uh, to pursue this, 
uh, quest that they're pursuing. And I find it interesting in verse two that that they're at least vaguely familiar with, but it seems like they're pretty they're fairly aware that uh, the time for the Messiah to be born is upon them. Um, and again, that could you know uh, be spiritual influence from above or or maybe it's just through their learning and studying who we, we can't be sure why, but uh, the fact that they specifically ask, where is this king of the Jews for we've seen his star? Uh, that's got to be uh, significant. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I've spent much time thinking about before, but, but certainly worth, uh, worth, worth thinking about. Yeah. I, I think it, it, it seems like this is uh, this idea of the king of the Jews um, was something that they were aware of. Clearly they were looking for, uh, they knew about, and I, I think it speaks to like e- either Persia or Babylon, either point of origin you choose for, for these wise men. Um, it, it goes back to the captivity, um, in, to, to me anyway, it seems like, um, in captivity, both in Babylon and in Persia, there was a lot of, um, cross pollination, so to speak, between, uh, between Jew Jewish culture and religion and between, um, Eastern, what they would call Eastern culture and religion, that'd be Babylon and Persia. Um, and so it went both ways, right? So some of that idolatry and, um, not so great cultural elements rubbed off on the Jews who were in captivity and some of the, 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 the Jewish monotheism and, and culture of, uh, sort of, struggling for righteousness struggling with 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 divinity um had to have rubbed off on on the the babylonians and the persians as well uh, even to the point it seems like that centuries later they are still it would seem consulting some sort of jewish wisdom literature looking for um this promise of, of a king who is coming um so we don't know exactly how they put all these pieces together or how much divine help they had, but it seems like there were both of these things going on or, or human efforts were meeting divine efforts. Um, yeah. So uh, the star uh, rose and they've come to worship him. And that word for worship uh, probably is not as religious as it sounds in translation. The Greek word means something like pay homage to, but but you would but the paying homage is something that you do to a king, right? Yeah. So it makes sense that Herod is troubled when he hears this, and they've called him the king of the Jews. Uh, did did you read any um uh, like background on on Herod the Great, or do you know much of the story there? Uh, I don't I don't know too much about him, other than some of the things you've already mentioned. Uh, from what I understand, he was a great military leader and. Uh, um, also pretty instrumental in uh, developing in infrastructure as well. Yeah. Uh, so by, I mean, by secular accounts, it seems as if he would have been a successful ruler, but then we see him, we see him uh, kind of consumed with uh, concern and jealousy and selfish ambition, I suppose. And when he it eliminates yeah. all the two-year-old males or, and below. So. Yeah. Well, you about hit it right on the head. I don't know if I'm going to add anything more to that that uh, definition of Herod the Great's uh, character and and rule. There's a lot, a lot of history there to be mined, and I didn't go too deep into it. But it seems like uh, Herod was uh, a kind a real mixed bag of a ruler. 
because he he did, like you said, <clears throat> won a lot of great victories, um, built a lot of infrastructure and impressive buildings and um, was was lauded in a lot of ways for his accomplishments. But all these things were accomplished through a lot of um, uh, bloodshed and political repression and religious persecution because uh, I mean, the Jews, especially the Pharisees really despised Herod. It seems like they considered him to be a usurper because he technically uh, had Edomite uh, lineage, it seems. And so they didn't consider him to be a real Jew ethnically. Um, and um, the, he was basically a, a, you know, a lackey <laughs> of, of the Roman empire um, that they installed to sort of hold this region down for them. So um, it, it seems like uh, any, any, anyone who would have a legitimate claim to the throne of David would be a, a serious threat to uh to herod's actual um claim on political authority in this situation and so i think that's why he reacts so violently to to this yeah and i think it's safe to say um at least in this time period if you if you were a friend of the romans then you were automatically an enemy of the jews at this point so yeah, uh, yeah. i mean they many of the jews considered themselves to be um under occupation by by the Roman powers, and that is in essence what was happening. Uh, and Herod was the the tool that the Romans used to basically keep that the status quo for a long, long time. So when when Herod hears of this, he's troubled, and all Jerusalem is troubled with him. And I thought that was was interesting and kind of speaking to his character as well. It doesn't seem like all of Jerusalem would be troubled to hear about the coming of the King of David but they might be troubled to hear that Herod has heard about the coming <laughs> of the, of the King or the son of David um, in terms of what he might do. Um, did you have any, anything jump out to you there or? Well, just, I, I think there are different, I don't know the Greek word for uh, troubled here, but I yeah. know there's different ways of thinking about what that means, you know, in this context. And it could, it could just mean general interest, I think, but certainly it can also uh, indicate uh, great concern or, or uh, um, worry, you know, about it as well. Yeah. Uh, at, at the very least, at the very least, Jerusalem is is stirred up in a sense and kind of excited or or at least interested in in this news that that for whatever reason they were not aware of, but but these magi had been. Yeah, I've been acutely aware of. So um, I, I'm trying to think about why why these uh, wise men would have been so in tune with with this situation, whereas you know Jerusalem, which is the heart of of uh, uh, um, Jude, Jude, Judaism, uh, why they would not have uh, been studying this and, and keeping up with it as closely. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... I think in in during the periods where the Greeks had control over that region and then the Romans came in and, and basically took over their operation at a certain point, um, I think there is a delusion of uh, of the Jewish traditions and religion um, that we see in the time of Christ, um, where you end up with these factions like the the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
the Pharisees are an overreaction in kind of the conservative direction where they're trying to go back and get, get back to the original spirit of things, but they're way overdoing it by adding a bunch of extra burdens and, um, uh, just intentionally always provoking trouble, uh, trying to get out from under Roman rule. And then the Sadducees sort of were in the other direction where they were more or less complacent. It seems with, 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 with the, sort of occupation for lack of a better term um, and, and weren't as kind of restoring uh, the, the roots of, of the Jewish tradition. And, and I think generally culturally you had a lot of people who were quite ambivalent and had gotten drawn into a lot of Greek cultural and religious philosophical practices um, in, in terms of like uh, paying homage to certain pagan deities that the Greeks were associated with and being um, I can't hear what you're saying, Paul. Okay, it's showing that you're muted now. Okay, we should be back. Yeah. Sorry about that, guys. The... Uh internet issues. Um, so basically we were saying that, um, you know, all Jerusalem is troubled. We don't know all the reasons for that, but it seems like this, this entire thing was a, was a threat to this power structure, this sort of power sharing thing that was going on between Herod, the Romans. And, and then there was this broader Greek cultural context where everybody's Judaism, it seems like had been watered down by by all the greek stuff um to a certain extent where they it's a, probably a lot of people didn't really have um contact with the the messianic hope that was in the prophets i mean there, there were certain ones that that we are told by the gospels hoped for it and saw it um but um it, you know i think a lot of people were were lackadaisical or or ambivalent toward it um so Herod brings all his chief priests and his scribes together and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. And so they tell him Bethlehem in Judea. And then they, they quote the prophet Hosea. Um, uh, you O Bethlehem in the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So um Herod is the king of the Jews at the time. So my my question when I read this is, why didn't Herod know when the Messiah was supposed to be born? I mean, it is kind of an obscure question from the prophets, but it seems like it would be in his interest to be pretty familiar with those texts, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point you make. You would You would think, although, I mean, if he's busy you know, with various projects or, or various slaughterings or whatever. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe he can't be burdened with the, the day to day of, of whatever religious texts were, uh, you know, available yeah. at the time, which is probably why he assembled this, this uh, cabinet of chief priests and scribes. And, right. you know, let's get these uh, religious experts in here to yeah. uh, bring me up to date on, uh, 
on all yeah. the uh, things that I missed. I'm but, sure he's uh, like, yeah, what, what are these guys for? They, they tell me this stuff, so I don't have to know it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can just, I, I'm kind of picturing like a modern day, uh, maybe uh, president, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. in the, in the midst of uh, some big news or some breaking, uh, breaking scandal or whatnot, assembling uh, his, his cabinet together in the war room to make a yeah. decision. Yeah. And, and some people have pointed out that like, um, the scribes would have tended to be Pharisees while the chief priests would have tended to be Sadducees. And these people were opposed to each other. And it's weird that he has them. He consults them both, but it actually kind of makes sense on a certain level to me. Cause it doesn't say he consults them both together at the same time, although he might've, but it would make sense to me, more sense to me if he consults them separately, right? He's trying to make sure that one isn't playing him off the other, that they're not tricking him, that they're both giving him the same answer. But it seems like they do both give him the same answer uh, and they quote him this passage from Hosea. So they know that Bethlehem is the town. Um, so uh, I guess, um, well, uh, one, one other thing here I wanted to say in verse six is uh, Bethlehem being a very small town. Um, I think it just, uh, there's a nice symmetry in that to God's tendency throughout the Bible to use very small things for big purposes. Like uh, he calls Israel the least of all the nations until he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. And it, it's sort of the same idea here that the Messiah, the savior of the whole world is going to come from one of the more insignificant towns in, in ancient um, Palestine. So. Yeah. And I mean, it's so, indirect opposition with our idea of kingship or, you know, kingliness or whatever the right word is for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and time after time we see throughout the Bible where God, like you said, takes something, what we something that humans would consider to be weak or small or insignificant and uses it in some big way. And I've always kind of understood that, to accomplish two different purposes. Number one, to, to keep us humble and help us to realize that we we're not as great or big or awesome as we think we are. And, yeah. and number two, to let us know that God is still very much in control and can have a tremendous effect on, on our lives if we allow him to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that he can, he can bring this about in whatever way he chooses and there's no path that is outside of his power. And, um, and he seems to, to genuinely like to, um, take the, the humble things of the world, the things that are despised by the world and lift them to a place of, of exaltation, which should give us hope, um, for, for our for the resurrection of our, of our flesh and the, uh, you know, eternal dwelling with God of our, of our spirits. Um, that's a thing that is totally in keeping with this this theme through the Bible. Um, anything else on verses one through six before I read ahead a little bit farther? Oh, just the just that uh, verse six pops up in Micah chapter five, verse two as well. Um, oh yeah, and uh, so multiple yeah, multiple places there. 
Yeah, yeah. Reference to I actually no, I, I'm sorry. I, I said Hosea, but I'm actually um citing, oh, okay. I'm citing the wrong thing. You're right. It's from Micah. It's from Micah chapter five, verse two. I was I don't I got got, got it confused with Hosea. I was thinking it was in Hosea as well. I was I was uh, not being a noble Berean there, I suppose. Yeah, no, no, no. That's an important correction to issue. It's it's Micah. <laughs> Micah chapter five, verse two is where that quotation comes from. Okay. So um Go, going ahead with verses seven. I'm going to read verses seven through 12. Okay. Um, Matthew chapter two, verses seven through 12. And I am also reading from the ESV. Woo. Go ESV. <laughs> um, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay. So Herod summons these wise men. And I can't help but be reminded of, um, is it uh, John chapter three, where Nicodemus comes to Christ by night or in secret um, it's sort of the same idea here. Maybe, I don't know. I would be interested to hear your ideas. My thought here was, um, Herod probably can't afford to be like seen consorting with these foreign, um, wise men, religious figures, astrologers. Um, and he probably also doesn't want to raise a big, uh, red flag to everybody that this is a thing that's happening, that, that this child has been born. Um, so those seem like reasons he'd want to keep it secret. Um, but I think it's interesting. Like it paints a little bit of a picture of an interrogation <laughs> that's going on here in secret, right? He wants to know specifically what time they saw the star. Um, and then, well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. It, very clearly he's, he's wanting to disguise his, his intentions and purposes here. Right. And yeah. so, I mean, I would like to think that the chief priests and the scribes, if they had um, been let in on the on been let into the the knowledge or the information that hey we've got a the possibility of of the Messiah coming here, um, he wouldn't want them to think that he had ill intentions, and so he's probably gonna or nefarious purposes, I suppose, would be a better way of saying it, but. So he, he pulls these guys aside. I, I think you're probably right to uh, keep them away from the from the uh, religious leaders of the people. And, and even even in, in explaining to them, he, you know, he hides his, his intentions again and in, in saying, I want to I want to be a part of this. I want to worship yeah. this guy. No way am I concerned about my uh, my, my own personal power and uh, um, anyone that could possibly challenge that you know yeah uh, i said i said in verse uh, in verse 8 that i when i read that i picture herod um 
I picture Herod saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And then at the, at the end, he gives a big wink, like a big, like to the camera. like <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. You know, those memes where the lady is like winking so hard. That's just what I'm, I'm picturing there. Um, yeah. It's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, yeah, you're right. He definitely doesn't want uh, these magi comparing notes with the chief priests and the scribes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he wants to keep this thing as secret as as possible, I think. Um, but he is he's he's telling them in verse eight that he wants to go and, and worship the child, which um, he, he does not. This is this is a ruse. Um but uh, so they 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 go their way after coming to the king and they're they're still seeing this star that they saw before. Um, and it comes to rest over the place where the child was in verse nine. So I, I just have this is just kind of an open question. But and this is something that was when I looked at, at commentary a little bit, it seems like um, was debated quite a bit. Like, what is the nature of this star? Is it some ordinary astrological phenomenon or is it miraculous? I mean, obviously, I tend to think that it, it there's something miraculous happening here, especially when you're going from Judea to Bethlehem, you're moving south. So it would seem like this star is not keeping your standard, you know, east to west course. Instead, it's going north to south, roughly. So that seems something miraculous to that, but in terms of how it guides them to his specific location, I got no idea how, how that works. Um, but uh, did you see anything on that or? Yeah. The, the only thing that I, I read was that it's the, the possibility of it being a supernova, I guess, or I, I'm just not yeah. an astrological guy, I guess. Uh, um, yeah. I need to I'm, I'm science dumb. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, I've always assumed, I guess, and I know assumptions are dangerous, but I've always assumed that this was not a a star that we would look up in the sky and, and you know, be able to map or chart. This is something that was, you know, had served a very a specific purpose. And then once it once it served its purpose was um, no longer visible it is what I've always thought, I guess. Yeah, it it was weird. Like last year, do you remember that that Bethlehem star thing that everybody was talking about? Um, like there was some there was some star that was that was visible that they said was you could only see every some crazy amount of time. Yeah, you know, it seems like there's one of those every year. But this one, the, I think this was last year. People were saying that it was the Bethlehem star. That's what they were calling it. Um, to me, that kind of thing seems highly dubious. Uh, cause it just like kind of assumes there's a naturalistic explanation to this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, it, you're, you're right that this was a specific star for a specific purpose. Um, it's not something that could be repeatable or traceable. I don't think. Um, but it, it it's also not super clear how, how this worked, like how it like gave them, it seems to anyway, give them some kind of like GPS pinpoint almost to the exact uh, spot where they're supposed to go. And um, yeah, it yeah. says, it says uh, in verse nine that it came to rest over the place where the child was. I mean, yeah, if, if, it's, at, moving, 
if, if it's moving through the sky and then comes, you know, to a, to a stop, to a halt. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's gotta be, uh, you know, um, something. God miraculous, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did want to go back to uh, Herod just for a second and yeah. point out that I, I think, and I, I with a certain, a certain amount of, uh, um, certainty here, I suppose, Herod's his strategy here is exactly what has brought him success and power up to this point. Yeah. And for us to see it fail so miserably after it's been successful for him many times in, in his past, uh, I think just points again to the um, inevitability of God in, in the sense that whatever God has in store or has planned is going to uh, take place regardless of, regardless of how we try and, and fight it or, or, you know, serve our own purposes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I read and I, I didn't mention this when I was talking about him earlier, um, but that shortly before this time, Herod had had um, two of his sons and his wife executed just mm. for political reasons, just because he thought they were a threat to him, um, which is pretty, pretty cold hearted and sort of fits with the picture <laughs> that we see uh, of him in this, uh, in the, the, the this uh, chapter of Matthew. Um, yeah. It seems like there's, uh, there's not any level of uh, deceit or underhandedness or, you know, violence that he wouldn't resort to. So, uh, it, but, but it also, I mean, and he was also very old at this point and, and ailing, uh, it seems like, which some commentators will kind of use to explain why he seems to just trust these magi to come back and, and give a report to him. It doesn't seem to enter his head that they might just not do that. And then he gets really mad when they don't. Um, so it seems like he's also maybe not altogether in his faculties, um, at this time. Um, and yeah, he sounds a little Stalinesque in the, in the sense of, uh, being very paranoid, you know, towards yes. the end of his career. Yes. He was extremely paranoid and, um, uh, yeah. And any, any political threat, it seems like he was, uh, wanting to deal with swiftly and severely. Um, uh, so I, I, uh, I thought in verse, uh, 10, you see this uh, again, just another note that, uh, I guess supports the idea that, um, it's an indication that there was some kind of expectation on the part of these magi, uh, that this was the fulfillment of something that was important to them. I don't know what exactly that something was. It might not be exactly the Jewish conception of the Messiah per se, um, but they, th this Christ child, uh, was, the, uh, you know, the fulfillment of some extremely important, um, thing to them. They, they were looking for the King of David, the son of David, uh, for, uh, for one reason or, or another, because they rejoice exceedingly with great joy when they see him. Um, I just think well, it's just as I'm thinking about as well, the importance of, for Matthew, for Matthew's purposes in writing the gospel, the importance of having someone outside of the Jewish religion acknowledge yeah. this event is substantial. Yeah, because Matthew's going to paint Jesus as a universal savior. 
Um, and so it's not just, it's not just the Jews. Um, it, it, it's, it's not even just the Gentiles in the immediate area, but these Gentiles from way far away, um, in ancient terms, um, also have hope in the coming of, of Christ. Um, and then they, they go into the house. So uh, a lot of commentators will point out that like that there has been some not insubstantial amount of time that's passed between the main, the nativity, what we think of as the nativity scene, Jesus laying in the manger. And, uh, and this point, cause they are at home in a house at this yeah. point. Um, yeah. so, uh, but I didn't know if you had anything, anything else on, on that. They fall down and worship him or pay homage to him. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it seems like at least a year from my understanding, you know, from my uh, yeah. understanding of this, it seems like at least a year has passed at this point. Clearly they've taken up residence, you know, that um, with Joseph and Mary, they, they've established a residence and uh, um, not only that, but Herod, you know, Herod later on is going to issue the decree of anyone two or younger. So, I mean, you yeah. would think that Jesus has has certainly had some time to grow and develop at this point if Herod's going to execute two-year-olds and, and yeah. below. Yeah, and that, that two-year-old figure, maybe um, it may be Herod uh, giving himself a little bit of a buffer, just being yeah. like, everybody two and under, get rid of them. Uh, Jesus might not quite have been two yet when that comes down, but he's probably a year or year and a half old um, at that point it seems like. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, uh, quite a bit of time has passed and, and it seems like there would have been some time and preparation required for this trip anyway, that the, that the Magi are making. Um, and, uh, the, they open their treasure and in, in the Greek, it seems like that word is something like their treasure boxes or their coffers. And, um, they offer him gifts and the gifts are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, did you uh, did you look at anything on the the significance of, of these gifts? Um, obviously, gold we know is something that's significant to people today. Uh, it, it's extremely valuable, and the the frankincense and myrrh, I think, are things that are more ancient, but would have been equally precious to people at the time. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't really. Um... Unfortunately, I mean, obviously gold would have been extremely heavy for them to carry um, yeah. a great distance. Uh, but other than the fact that these are gifts that are would have been typically offered to royalty, um, I, I don't have a lot of information for you there. Uh, yeah, well, and there, there's not there's not a ton of information, honestly. Um, it's I mean, gold. We all know gold. Frankincense and the myrrh were two were two forms of. Uh, um, uh, well, frankincense was used to make incense and myrrh was also used to make incense. Sometimes it was also used to like preserve things and to, uh, to embalm dead bodies. And it was also worn as a perfume. It seems like myrrh was, um, so, uh, but, but these were things that were expensive though, because they, the frankincense and the myrrh, uh, come from two specific trees. Like it's like, I think it's their actual sap or the resin from these, these trees that goes into this thing. Um, and you can only get them in like 
you know, the Arabian Peninsula, basically. Um, so uh, it would have been something that they, that the Magi, it seems like, would have had to trade for to get in the first place. And then they are giving them as these lavish gifts to, to the Christ child. But yeah, other than that, not a lot known about frankincense and myrrh. So there really wasn't, wasn't that much to find out. It's just, it comes from trees and supposedly smells good. Yeah, there were there were no beauty stores, I suppose, back then, where you just go and pick up a, a bottle of frankincense or a or a yeah, no, there there was no Zephora in the mall or whatever, right. whatever, yeah. wherever girls go to buy their their stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, then, in verse twelve, we see them warned in a dream not to not to return to Herod, and they go back to their own country by another way. So again, I brought this up with Ed last week, but I just think it's so interesting the the uh, amount of play and discussion around dreams in these early chapters of Matthew. Um, the and and a, one of the things that would have been associated with these magi, I think, from what I saw, is interpretation of dreams. So this mm. is something they were sensitive to as well. Um, it seems like this is kind of a cross cultural thing. All the ancient people seemed like they were worry they were worried about their dreams interpreting their dreams um but it, again we taught me what me and ed talked about last week is that um there there is a difference though between sort of navel gazing kind of like freudian interpretation of your dreams which can have some benefit but it's you know it's got its limitations but then when you have a dream sent to you from from the divine being from 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 god himself uh, that's like not a mistakable experience. And, uh, they would have, um, they would have known that. Um, yeah, this, course, this would not have been a, a common, you know, dream, like, like we have all the time or it, or, uh, even a hallucination. It, it, ha it would have yeah. had to have been something that they would have been able to mark as, you know, this is obviously divinely influenced. Yeah. Um, and that's a consistent thing throughout the Bible. You don't that I know of you. Every character that ever receives some sort of divine dream or vision like this, sometimes they'll ask for confirmation in certain ways, but they almost always will take it on its face as it is what it is. It's a communication from God. And that's to me indicates that this is not a replicable experience. There's nothing you can compare it to. It's not like anything else. And um, when they experienced it in those ancient contexts, they were quite certain um, that they had, they had had an interaction with, with the divine. Um, and, and of course, you know, today a lot of people want to say that their dreams are given to them by God. And um, I just don't see any evidence from the scripture that that sort of thing happens uh, anymore today. Uh, but um, but I do think that our, that our dreams are is still today. People are very, are obsessed with their dreams. They're people are very interested in them. So I think it's something that's like deep in the human psyche that God used at certain times in history to, um, move people forward in big leaps or reveal to people special information that they needed for their time. Um, but I mean, again, I, I feel like uh, in the next little section, you get a similarity 
between the way that uh, the Magi react directly to the dream that they get and the way that Joseph reacts to the dream that he gets. So I guess, uh, do you have anything else on 7 through 12 before we move ahead? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I will I will say that I'm, I'm hesitant to discount people that say they have, you know, some spiritual dream experience just because, I mean, personal interpretation is always something that, or personal experience, interpretation mm. of personal experience, I suppose, is, is not something I guess that's easy to, to discount in the first place. So, I mean, oh yeah, if someone wants to, uh, if, if someone believes that and, and has that sincere belief, who am I to say differently? You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. It, it's a, it's a, it is a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing. And I, and uh, I don't, I don't think that I don't even know that I would, if someone came to me and said, I had this dream and I think it's a message from God, uh, I would want to figure out what they think God is, what that, what they think God is trying to, it was telling them to try to, to do. Um, and then <laughs> decide from there, whether I guess this is a benign thing or, uh, a cancerous thing, spiritually speaking, because sometimes people will try to justify crazy things that they want to do with God told me to do this in a dream. And that's well, not something I want to support, but I, I do see what you're saying though, that like, um, if someone, if, th- if people genuinely feel like they've received some kind of communication, um, and it's not something that is going to lead them off in some horrible, you know, destructive direction. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any harm there. I just, uh, I just, uh, you know, from my perspective, I would be open to examining the evidence on this again, but I just have never seen any compelling evidence um, that that sort of thing still goes on um, at least in any consistent way today. But um, uh, again, it, it's, it's a pretty murky subject, biblically speaking. Um, and so uh I don't, I don't, I guess I would, would just leave it at that. Anything. Uh, well, yeah, you make a, I mean, you bring up, you make a fair point because yeah. the, the problem with, with this personal interpretation thing is, is you'll get people like Joseph Smith or Ellen yeah. White. They claim to have uh, uh, yeah. divine uh, inner uh, intuitive experiences, I suppose, where there's a new revelation. Right. And, and Paul kind of takes that, whole notion to task in, in second Corinthians. I think it's, I want to say it's chapter 11 where he says that, you know, if anyone comes to you with a, a different gospel um, yeah. or, or has some new, new interpretation or new revelation to share with you, um, yeah. even if it happens, even if you think it's, it's from the spirit or from an angel, uh, then you need to uh, be very wary of that. You need to be yeah. very careful of that. Yeah, well, and I think what we what we can say safely is that like if you receive a a a word a word from God and you and you I don't want to put it in scare quotes like that because I guess that's dismissive, but if if you receive a message from God in that way or you feel you have and it contradicts something in in here, um, that's not a message from God. I don't. I'm sorry. I'll just be adamant about that. I don't know what it's a message from or if it's a message at all but it's not from God. <laughs> and so, um, and I guess that's all I'll say about that now. Um, but I still, I, 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 I do appreciate your point though. I will be humble enough to say that I don't fully know, um, 
how how God works in that way. Um, and uh, there are many things about the way his providence and the way he um, puts things into people's hearts that I that I uh, that are mysterious to me. Uh, and so um, I, I just am. Uh, I, I guess um, for something as big as that, I want to see uh, hard biblical evidence, but I'm, I haven't, I don't have a, a, a mind that's firmly made up on the subject one way or another. Um, yeah. But that, that's, that's a really good discussion though. I didn't expect to go that, that deep <laughs> well, down we, that, yeah, that, the windy I dream think. rabbit hole, but <laughs> yeah. But well, I, think, I think uh, to be fair, uh, I'm I'm perfectly happy to stand on the the statement of I don't understand God fully. And yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are many many things about God that I do not understand and will not understand, and we just have to. Uh, not that we should ever stop seeking more knowledge. We should always be trying to learn more and know more, but we also have to accept the fact that there's going to be a ceiling on how much we can take in, in our lifetimes and how much, you know, even if we had all the time in the world, how much we could take in with our feeble human flesh. Um, our minds can only stretch so far. Uh, yeah. so, uh, one, of those, one of those Greek philosophers, uh, I don't know if it was Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. One of those guys said, uh, the more I know, the the more I realize I don't know, you know, something along those that lines. Sounds like a Socrates thing. Socrates, yeah. Socrates is my favorite of those guys because he would just annoyed people until they p- literally executed him, uh, which is seems like a, a pretty cool life path to take. Like he would he would go up to people. He would start every discourse by he would go up to people and say, I'm a very ignorant man. Can you please explain whatever the subject was to, him, to he's like, explain it to me. And then people would explain it to them. And then he would just ask them endless questions about like just but why but how but how does and then people would get so mad and then they made him drink poison so (laughs) but yeah uh, approaching everything as though you you don't fully understand it and you want to know more uh which is essentially the socratic method um that's the best way to approach anything and it's a very good way to approach scripture keeps you humble i think um, I, I agree. Yeah. All right. I will, uh, I'll go ahead and read verses, um, 13 through 15. Um, no, wait, I just read you read verses 13 through 15. Okay. I will do that. Okay. Matthew chapter two, verse 13 says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay. So um, when they had departed, and that's that's the Magi, um, this angel of the Lord comes to Joseph also in a dream and says, Get up, take take your child, take the child's mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Um, and he tells them this is because Herod is trying to kill the child. Um, I, I just think it's interesting. Um, Herod's, I mean, uh, Joseph has already received one dream, uh, and that in 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 Matthew 
uh, one and he responds to it immediately. He wakes up, he takes, he takes Mary as his wife um, or to be his, uh, he takes her as his wife. They were already betrothed, but they don't have contact with one another until Jesus is born. And we see a sort of a similar pattern here where as soon as Joseph has had the dream, um, he gets up and does what the angel has told him. He gets the Mary and the baby and goes to Egypt. Um, but did you have anything on, um, or do you have any thoughts on this section as far as, you know, the big picture of scripture and the connection with Egypt? Well, I mean, outside of, of, uh, the Israelite enslavement in Egypt and, and, we have a we have a Joseph that is responsible for bringing the the twelve tribes to Egypt in the first place, and then we have another yeah. Joseph later on who is responsible for uh, bringing the Messiah um, into Egypt. Interestingly yeah. enough, so there's uh, there's definitely a connection there, definitely a parallel. Um, outside of that, I don't know that there's um, I can't think of another significant. No, that. That's exactly what I was. That's what I exactly what I was thinking. Um, that's what I was. Uh, that's what I got from it is that y- y- exactly what you said. Joseph brings the children of Israel into Egypt or the, ch- not the children. Of, yeah. The children of Israel at that point, because um, uh, th- they had been, they were the children of Israel of, 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 uh, of Isaac. And um, so he brings them into Egypt and then they are led out by Moses who gives them the law. And we're told that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ and John. Um, so there's a definite parallel there being drawn that the, the Jews as a people came out of Egypt. That was their, their point of origin, or at least when they became tied together as, as a people, their origins go back further than that but um they become hebrews as such when they come out of of egypt and so um it it makes sense that um god calls his son in the sense of the nation of israel was referred to as the sons of god the you know set apart people of god Uh, but in the christian sense of son of god as in christ was the son of god and we are called sons of god when we're brought into christ um Christ called uh, or God calls Christ out of Egypt in, in the narrative of this story and calls us out of Egypt. If you think about Egypt as a kind of a metaphor for being in sin and being in the bondage of, of sin and idolatry. Um, So we come out of the world and into the promised land, so to speak. Um, But yeah, that's, that, that's basically what I had there that like this connection with Egypt is through the whole Bible um, I mean, there were two, there were two foreign locations that played that loomed large in the Jewish mind. One of them was Egypt and the other was Babylonia, um, because of bondage, bondage in Egypt, as slaves, and then a captivity in Babylonia, um, in more recent history. And I, I think it's interesting. You kind of get both of those locations in this one chapter of the gospels. So it's like, all of Israel's past is tied into this one figure, the Messiah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting too. That now that I'm thinking about it, that you know, the, the 
Jacob's family or, you know, the family of Israel was brought to Egypt in the first place to escape death by famine. Mm. And in this case, um, the Messiah is brought to Egypt to escape death by Herod, I suppose. Yeah. And then, um, but then we also see that, uh, that Egypt is not meant to be the place for, is not to be the final promised land or resting place for the nation of Israel in Genesis. And then, uh, uh, the Messiah in, uh, in Matthew's account. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you have the parallel too, with, um, you know, the, the slaughtering of the innocents that happens in the beginning of, of Exodus and then a very similar event that happens here. Um, but now keep, we have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, all the, ever, all the children under two or the male babies under two in Bethlehem wouldn't, it wouldn't have been that many because Bethlehem is kind of a small town. Um, but, uh, if you think about that sort of localized grief, uh, I mean, when, when they come back from Egypt and I'm jumping ahead of my, myself a little bit here, but when they come back from Egypt, Joseph is hesitant to go back to Bethlehem and it's partially because there are people that are still, that still might be seeking Jesus's life there. Uh, the angel tells him that the ones who had wanted to kill him are now dead, but then Joseph gets spooked when he hears that Herod, the great son is in charge of that area. Cause he thinks, well, his son probably wants to, wants to kill my son as well. Um, yeah, but I also think part of it too is that um, the imprint that this would have had on that small town. Imagine in a small town, every mother of a child two and younger loses their child to the hands of the state. The child is violently murdered by soldiers. Um, you don't come back with your kid of that age range <laughs> to that town. Um, and especially if there might still be some people around that remembered that you hightailed it out of town right before all this happened. I don't know. These were just thoughts that I had there around sort of that thing, but I have jumped ahead of myself here. I should go ahead and read uh, yeah. verses 16 through 18. If you don't have anything to add there. Um, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Verse uh, starting in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region uh, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Um, so that's a citation from, from Jeremiah 31, 15. Um, and uh, again, it, it echoes the slaughtering of the innocents in Exodus. And, and the reference to Jeremiah 31, 15, in its original context, it had reference to the destruction uh, that was wrought uh, during the time of the captivity and, and during... Uh, the time in which uh, the children of Israel were taken away um, into captivity. There's great human suffering associated with a forced migration like that. And with the plundering that took place even before that. Um, and, and, but like happens so many times uh, with the citations of these old Testament prophecies, uh, they get plucked from their 
uh, original context and given a secondary meaning in the New Testament that is even higher and more spiritual uh, than than the original meaning. Uh, so uh, Matthew uh, takes this quotation from from Jeremiah and and essentially says, okay, but it wasn't just about that time. It's about this time and this terrible thing that happened um, in this one place and 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 about the picture that's painted there of a mother's grief in in that quotation is so palpable. Um, it's it's actually quite uh, moving, I find. Yeah, I don't have any. I have no personal experience. I mean, obviously, we all have good things and and bad things, at least however we perceive them in our lives that happen to us, you know. Um, and, and so we all have our struggles and we all have our, um, our, our times of grief and mourning. But I cannot imagine the, this circumstance, you know, this taking place. Uh, it, if yeah. this was to happen in, in our country today, in the United States today, there would be, you know, an uproar. There would be a, an uprising. Uh, um, yeah probably from the likes of which we've never seen. And, and so I can't, I, I can't identify, but it just had to be like a, a terrible thing to see the government come in and, and murder these children. Yeah. And anyway. Uh, so. No, I, mean, I know. I, I agree. It's, it's a terrifying picture. And, um, but, and again, going back to Herod the great, it seems not, uh, you know, a lot of the, the higher uh, textual critics want to point to this event and say there's no outside historical evidence that this ever happened. And I'm to me, it's like, well, this it wouldn't be something that it would be in Herod's interest to publicize. Um, and it seems like uh, it was a very different world, the ancient world. There's no cell phone. There's no CNN. There's no. Uh, way to get the word out about this event other than word of mouth. And it would have been in everybody's interest who was involved in, in ordering this thing to make sure there wasn't knowledge or documentation of it officially. Um, so it, to me, it seems like uh, it's not surprising that there's not outside attestation to this. Uh, Paul, you cut out again. But to build on to build on what you're what you you're saying and what you were continuing to say, I assume as as you were muted, uh, even in today's world with and and in recent history, we've seen media and various various platforms and and various um in, information sources willing to cover up for the government in in various aspects of of yeah. life and uh, you know i i can think i think of edward snowden you know kind of and maybe uh julian assange as well as being two people who were willing to kind of um Air, air out the dirty laundry of the government in some ways. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, it's easy for us to see, I think, um, even in, in uh, 2000 years ago, even 2000 years ago, the willingness of, of historians and, and uh, 
historical writers to cover up atrocities for for uh, governments, you know. Yeah. Well, and when when my mic cut out, I was basically just saying it's not surprising that they would not there would be, this would be a secret thing, and uh, and it's it's in fitting with Herod's character who was willing to kill his own family members and um, kill anybody who was a threat to him. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. The the um uh, the powers that that um are put in place by the established order every everyone is um it's in their interest to all protect one another uh so the historians of the time had political interests that they were writing toward uh the rulers of the time had things that they did not want to be known um so any any history that we look at from this ancient past we have to approach uh, with the view again, like we've said, that we don't know all the details. Um, and uh, the, what's what's fantastic about the scripture is that uh, there are places in the scripture that tell us that um, that we have everything that is needed for life and godliness. So everything for our path forward, and in terms of how we live and how we view the world, we've been given. But I tell people all the time, and I say this in my preaching. It doesn't mean we have the whole picture. God's been working in all kinds of ways since the beginning of time. Um, and there are little hints of the things that he's doing on the peripheries in the, in the Bible. Um, but those things are just as big and just as um, um, from our perspective, vital to making the world we live in as the stuff we, that is revealed to us in scripture. Um so uh, again, th this is not to discount the importance of scripture. Scripture is vitally important to us forming um, our view of ourselves and the world and other people. Uh, but we just need to be aware that God's plan is bigger even than that, that it is wider and the, the web is more uh, complex than we can even um, give, give thought to. Um, I don't know how I got off on that weird tangent, but I guess just saying that uh, that, um, well, this is a chapter of Matthew where I think we clearly see God's providence in ways, both direct and indirect. Um, yeah. Well, do you want to, do you have anything else there or do you want to close out, uh, the chapter, uh, reading 19 through the end? Yeah, I'll just go, I'll go ahead and, uh, and read the final section of scripture here. Was it uh, 19 through 23, I guess. Yeah. All right. So um, in Matthew two, starting in verse 19, it says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay. So uh, Herod the Great dies. Angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, says you can go back. Um, and, and like we've already discussed a little bit, he goes back, finds out that, um, that 
Archelaus, Archelaus, um, I'm not exactly sure the correct pronunciation of that, but he uh, was Herod the Great's son, um, and he was reigning in that same position from 4 BC to 6 AD, uh, so about 12, uh, now I'm going to be bad at, at math here, it was about 10 years he's reigning. It's, I always don't know what to do with the zero year uh, when you're making that calculation. But um, he he was in that same position. But then in 6 AD, the secular history says that uh, he was essentially hated so much by the Jews that uh, Augustus Caesar got really concerned that they were going to overthrow him. And so he just kicks him out himself preemptively and puts some other guy there. So um, but this guy was apparently even. Uh, worse in some ways than Herod the Great was hated more <laughs> in some ways than Herod the Great. Um, but uh, and so it makes sense that Joseph is a little bit uh, reticent to go to to go back to Bethlehem. And instead, he stays in in Galilee. Um, and it seems like Galilee was a place where uh, that was looked down upon because it had certain pagan influences. It had a lot of Gentiles living there as opposed to Judea, which was like the most heavily Jewish in terms of the demographics um, province of, of, of Roman Palestine. Um, but I, 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 I can't help but feel like this has some effect on like shaping Jesus's childhood and, and um, the, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it just makes a, a difference. Um, him being exposed to uh, all, all of these Gentiles and all of these Greeks, because when he, when he, we come to his ministry, it's going to be um, almost sort of uh, back and forth between Jews and, and Gentiles coming to seek him, uh, wanting to hear from him. And of course, Jesus is going to give preference and first, I would say uh, first offering of the gospel uh, to to the Jews, and he's going to say that salvation comes from the Jews, but it is a gospel for all. And many, many times Jesus will make statements um, about all who come to me uh, will uh, will have eternal life, um, and will will seek the Father. And it, it echoes with many uh, many of the notes in prophecy uh, about a a universal savior coming um, not just for the Jews, but, um, but for all people. Um, did you uh, any, what, what do you see here at the end of this chapter? I mean, he comes back, but doesn't go back to his hometown. You get all these locations. What, why did we get all this from Matthew? Well, again, I think it, it points back to, you know, we started in Bethlehem, uh, that's where the journey takes place or the, the beginning takes place, um, the birth. And, uh, and then we, we wind up at the end of the chapter here in Nazareth. And I think the implications for each of these locations are kind of similar in establishing yeah. the, the humility of the Messiah rather than the majesty um, in, in the, in the traditional human sense, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Not, yeah, I really like that. And I hadn't thought of it until you just said it, but this chapter begins with sort of the kingly roots of, of the Messiah talking about him in Davidic terms and then ends with Nazareth. 
uh, which, you know, elsewhere in the Gospels, someone says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, right. So such a despised location. So you get the divinity and the humanity. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to steal your point there, but that was just a, a mind blowing thing that I hadn't thought of yet. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, you're perfectly welcome to. And uh, <laughs> uh, that's what that's what a dialogue is. Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Nazareth is I mean, we don't I, we don't know all that much about it, but we know that that um, it was looked down upon as a as a city. And as you pointed out, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently the answer is, is at least one thing good can come out of Nazareth. At least one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, also he, he, um, it's unclear whether he was, it says the text, and I forget where the verse is, but it says he was unable to uh, perform signs and, and miracles in Nazareth. And, my understanding of that is that he chose not to. He was he was unable to because of the just utter lack of belief and and utter lack of appreciation for yeah. who he was and and his message that he was that he he felt as if Jesus himself felt as if it was uh, a a worth a worthless pursuit I suppose to yeah to uh use use any more time or resources or or what you know spiritual influence in, in that area and so it, it seems like a bit of a a, a hellhole so to speak in some ways yeah. well uh, yeah yeah i mean uh, that's the reputation it has certainly and i I've, i agree with you i've always read uh that in connection with the statements that jesus makes about a prophet having no honor in his own hometown and it it's just, it's just kind of the basic idea that like if people saw you grow up and they, they feel like they know something about you, it's going to be hard for you to, to speak with authority and with gravitas to them. Even apparently if you're performing miraculous signs and wonders, people just aren't going to buy it. Um, that's always how I've read that is that everybody's hearts are too hardened basically by thinking that they know you. Um, to be receptive to this. Um, and so I think that's why Jesus doesn't really even try to do, uh, to convince anybody, uh, in Nazareth, it seems like, um, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's a yeah. point as well. Um, and you and I are both, uh, you know, we both migrated from, uh, yeah, parts of the country to California. And to be fair, you know, I would say that people from my hometown growing up know a very different Zach McGinnis than the one that's sitting here talking to you today. Oh yeah. And, Same uh, here in a big way. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, and, and that's not to say that, you know, that just because Jesus grew up there, it doesn't mean that his message was less important or that, you know, um, I mean, obviously, clearly he, he had changed physically and, and spiritually, you know, since his baptism. But um, still, I would think that that in coming back to Nazareth or, or trying to teach people in Nazareth, you, you would think that they would be willing to get past um, their their former understanding of who he was as an individual or, you know, that whole idea of, oh, that's just uh, Jesus. He's the. He's the carpenter's son. He yeah. he installed that he installed that shelving for me, or he he built yeah. my uh, he built my gazebo, or you know yeah. that kind of thing. 
<laughs> Man, I hope there were just gazebos everywhere in ancient Palestine. I don't know if that's historically accurate, but I hope yeah. it is sincerely. <laughs> I just want there to be gazebos everywhere. Um, no, no, but you make a really good point though. It's that these people, these people did probably have work done by Jesus at some point, like woodwork done. They, they, they knew him. They knew his father. They knew his mother. Um, and not to mention the rumors that probably cropped up about his origins, given the events in Matthew chapter one, um, the discussion of Jesus as a possible bastard of sorts, um, is impossible to escape when you talk about his reputation in his hometown. So I, I think that, um, yeah, all of that to me seems like good reason why Jesus might not be that interested in convincing anybody in his hometown. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, and I think also Jesus had the divine confidence to know that, um, that it would that his message would spread so far and wide after uh, his death and ascension that it would be sort of a moot point anyway. Um, that everybody would everybody will believe eventually, and we're told in scripture that it, eventually every knee will bow, everyone will believe. Uh, and so I think Jesus knew that, and so that's why you see him being somewhat selective in where he wants to preach and what he wants to do. Yeah, that's it. But that's yeah, a good we went uh, we went an hour twenty there. Real good talk. <laughs> Anything else on uh, any close thoughts on Matthew chapter two before we close out here? Well, just uh, well, yeah. In, in regard to that last section of scripture that we were on, there it's possible too that there there would have been a a certain amount of scandal surrounding his his family as well if if it was well known in the community that Joseph was his stepfather, you know, or, yeah. or that, uh, um, there it's possible that there would have been some, you know, uh, maybe, maybe conversations behind closed doors, you know, about, uh, as you pointed out, Jesus being a bastard and, and uh, you know, it, it seems like the rumor mill is, is often uh, uh, much more influential than we want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, isn't that true? It's unfortunate even, but, but Hey, if even, if even Jesus <laughs> had had to deal with people saying, uh, negative things about him, misunderstanding him, misinterpreting him intentionally, misunderstanding him sometimes, um, we should just know that we're going to have to deal with that too. And that sometimes, um, you know, you can't go back and change where you came from or the way people perceive you. And uh, sometimes that's just going to be uh, something that's going to be hard for people to overcome in certain areas. But I mean, we're called to adventure, though. That's sort of what uh, brought me out here to California. I don't know about you, but I had this idea in my head of like, um, well, we're supposed to go with God, right? Ab Ab uh, you know, God ca called to Abraham and said, go to the place where I'll show you. And so um, we should be okay as people of faith with, uh, you know, taking a leap of faith. If that means going somewhere else that you don't know anybody, if it means trying a new thing that you've never tried before, you're worried it might fail, um, go with God, see what happens, do it. Um, you, you don't know um, what you've been destined for and what you're intended, what work you're intended to do in the Lord. 
Well, yeah, and we we all have a purpose. We we know, and and so uh, I, I definitely think that's a a good way to realize or or maybe more fully comprehend what that purpose could possibly be in your life. Um, what what God has called you to do is to to uh, change your environment. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe maybe you need a change of location. Not, I mean, and obviously not in every situation, but sometimes. It's what it's what it's called for. Jesus moved around a lot as a kid, so uh, has some benefits. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's probably a, a decent place to leave it. But thank you guys so much for for tuning in this week. Thank you, Zach, for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Um, hope to see you guys again next week on Christ Build Conversations. Peace. All right. Thanks, Paul. <laughs>